Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show today on the james altucher show i think that the number one thing that i would say is sit down alone with yourself and think you know what's important to me kind of what do I want to accomplish? What kind of person do I want to be? You know, what kind of career do I want? What do I want to be in my daily life? So it's a kind of a pre-selection process, right? So you make those types of choices once you figure out, you know, how do I want to go through life? And that's also how you choose what moments to really engage your Sherlockian brain. You know, what matters to me? If you figure out, okay, you know, these are the types of situations that are high high stakes for me. Your priorities just totally shift in the way you approach situations shift. You know, and and it's interesting because you discussed this a little bit later on, and I thought this was fascinating. You say human learning is largely driven by something known as the reward prediction error. Mm -hmm. And that's a fancy way of saying you learn something better when you have passion for it when learning more triggers dopamine. Mm -hmm. And I'll do that. Well, Alaska's different because... Yes, and shoot, make me go to like to the Caribbean with all these Northeastern Jews and everything and go down there where they complain. (laughs) No, but where they're complaining about everything. Like I went on that one. There's like... Hey, celebrating Food Nana's is terrible 90th such birthday. Small portions, yeah. You know what I mean? And it's so yeah. it's different. No, well, and Alaska so, like, is different grateful. because you can't see Alaska without a cruise. Like you can't see a lot of those yeah, places. Like a it's a small cruise. like it's a small ship. It's like a cruise to the Galap- the Galapagos. Yeah. Those are tiny. They have like five people on them. Right. And they're specialized boats. That's not a cruise. It's like oh, a, I want to explore I, this part of the world. I mean, it's called a cruise, but I don't like oh, I think okay. in my mind I, I see that as something totally different. Yeah, I agree. I think on these cruises to the Caribbean, it's like you have some some 75-year-old person <laughs> on a chaise lounge chair reading like the latest John Grisham novel for yeah. the entire time. Why couldn't they just do that at home? Why did they have to go on a yeah, yeah, who's sure. visiting like all these starving? Because they want to buy baubles from them and like and do. Yeah, you them. buy like this fake fourteen karat gold as soon as you get <laughs> off the boat. The, the, your TV in your room is only tuned to the channel about what the fourteen karat gold you're gonna buy on these oh, islands. 
It just seems like a nightmare. It does. It Unless does. you're playing poker the whole time, but then why you need to go on a cruise? Exactly. To do it? I would much rather play poker in Las Vegas when I can then go to an amazing restaurant afterwards and not be forced to eat on a cruise ship. Yeah, exactly. Yes. That's um, interesting too. Like they, that's that sounds like a nightmare to have a poker cruise. Like oh, well those those are those, those are very common Yeesh. and like people why? get so, invited like, all the time and they'll, so they can't like. They'll ask, like, oh, Maria, like, would you like to do a poker cruise? And I'd be like, fuck no. Yeah, you dance yeah. <laughs> I just play poker. James, would you like to do a poker no. cruise? <laughs> chess cruise? That could be fun for you. You know, no. there's chess cruises, too. I just, I, no, no. Just... You're so funny. <laughs> this podcast is about cruises, right? Yeah, we're doing Okay. <laughs> this is sponsored by Carnival Cruises. Yeah. <laughs> All right, excellent, excellent. Actually, have we been recording that? We should keep that. <laughs> Has Carnival ever sponsored this podcast? I didn't kind of want to sponsor any podcast. Carnival, until you sponsor this podcast, we're going to trash Carnival every single podcast from here on out. This is extort. We're an extortion podcast. We extort for our sponsors. What else can we say about cruise ships? Well, They're I big. mean, the bacteria. I mean, oh, yeah. basically, every time you touch any surface there, you're exposing yourself to norovirus and all sorts of different stuff. I mean, they're just like factories. Also, that- <laughs> people get killed. great on cruises. People, speaking of Sherlock Holmes, which we're about to talk about, people get killed on cruises. Like every cruise, somebody gets like thrown Absolutely. off by their Absolutely. Have you seen Succession? <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, Succession, and that's ba- that story's based on uh, Robert Maxwell. Somebody threw him off a cruise ship. or his I own, didn't know his that. Own yacht. Yeah. Wow. So he was a British news magnet who was thrown off of essentially a cruise ship, but it was his ship. But I feel like every cruise, there's a story of somebody just honeymooning where the husband throws the wife off. Or the wife throws the husband off. Or the wife throws the husband off. That seems a little more rare. I mean, we don't want to be sexist here. I I feel like equal opportunity throwing off of cruise ships. Men do have 50% more body strength than women. This is true. This is true. And once you're thrown off a cruise ship, it's not like you're you're landing on water. You're landing on... That's like you'll die on the way down. It's so far down. You're and, fucked. And then you're <laughs> you're 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 swept underneath yeah. and then chopped up. Absolutely. So it's horrible. It's you. horrifying. It's horrifying. The number of crimes I'm sure that are committed in international waters and never reported just I don't right, want to think about it. They don't have it. to. They That's the whole to. thing with succession too. There are cruise yeah. ships like, oh, what's it what do they call what's the abbreviation they call someone who doesn't matter? Oh, uh, uh not not a real person yeah, or something. So, by the way, we're not accusing Carnival of anything, <laughs> but Carnival, if you're listening, we are going to continue to bash cruise lines in general until you start sponsoring this podcast. And Succession, if you're listening, we love you. Please this sponsor has to be us your as well. IGTV hard cut yeah. video. This is fucking awesome. All right, yeah. All right. <laughs> but it's, it's no real person involved, right? NRPI, no real person. No involved. real person involved. No yeah. real person involved. And Succession, we love you. Sponsor as well. Yeah, success. Well, Succession. Succession is like the only HBO show that has not had a cast member on the podcast, right? All right, um, cast members, come on James's podcast. Yeah, we've been, yeah, we've been HBO, talking. HBO, we've had on Entourage, Curb, uh, uh, Ballers, uh, Ballers, uh, Barry, uh, Barry, various comedy specials. Do we had have executives? Huh? We've had executives. Executives from, from HBO. The have you had uh, Little Lies, Big Little Lies? No, no, I because I haven't seen that. Who else? Yeah. Do we have I haven't seen it either. So uh, we've had a lot of these. Have we ever had Larry Sanders show from way back? Oh uh, no, I don't think we've had. So HBO, if you're listening, yeah, 
Unless you put on a character from Succession or a writer. I'll take a writer or the, whoever wrote that excellent theme song that you have for Succession. It is a great theme song. We're going to trash H... And I worked at HBO. We're going to trash <laughs> HBO every single episode until... This is extortion podcasting, a new genre that we're developing right here. And I'm so glad that I'm here for its birth. I, know. I feel like I inspired it. This is the beginning of a podcast movement. I love it. I love Hotmail. it. Hotmail. Hotmail. <laughs> so... Uh, as I, as you can tell, I have the author of uh, the best-selling book, The Confidence Game, Maria Konnikova, <laughs> on the podcast. She's also, her first book, which we've never covered in a podcast, yeah. even though you've been on four or five times, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, or the book's called Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. I can't tell what's the subtitle, by the way. Um, Mastermind is the title, yeah. And How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes is the subtitle. You're also the author of what I can't wait to read, the upcoming book, The, the Biggest Bluff, where... You start off with zero skills in poker. You take on the, the the best player in the world as a coach, and you become, in the span of a year, uh, a remarkable poker player, a winning poker player. And a story of that I can't wait to read. We've been kind of following your story throughout on the podcast. But today, it's all about Sherlock Holmes, your first book, New York Times bestseller, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, Maria Konnikova, Welcome once again to the podcast. Thanks so much, James. It's so wonderful to be back. Have you ever thought about being a detective? No. I've thought about being a criminal. You thought about being a criminal? So so you were torn between <laughs> writing about Sherlock Holmes and writing about con men. You ended up writing about both. Which lifestyle appealed to you the most when you were reading about them? Well, I mean, if I'm perfectly honest, obviously I don't want to be a con artist. And I don't actually think it's an appealing lifestyle because even though a lot of the stories may seem fun. It's a ton of work. It's basically like being a secret agent because you have two lives. You have who you are, and then you have your persona, your identity as the con artist and whatever fiction you're spinning at that moment. So to me, that just seems like a waste of effort and talent. I think that con artists can be much more successful because they're so smart and talented, obviously, in other areas that don't necessarily require such a split personality. Being a detective, on the other hand, is fascinating because you get to help people and you get to intellectually solve crimes and all of this stuff. But I don't think I'd want to be a detective either, to be to be honest Why? with you. Because, you know, that's just... It's not something that's ever appealed to me. I like watching other people solve crimes. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not even an investigative journalist. Like, I, I love diving deep into topics, but I don't necessarily have the patience maybe to go out for multiple years and explore a crime to try to figure out who done it. Yeah. And I, I guess also there's kind of this, just like with, with con men, there's this, well, con men, you're right. You're living this double life and it's hard enough to live the stress of right. one life, let alone two. But you know, a, a detective reminds me a little bit of a doctor where mm -hmm. there's this puzzle-like quality on the surface, but then you're dealing with some really sad Absolutely. Issues. It's depressing. It's yeah. depressing. And obviously we know that uh, Sherlock Holmes was based on a doctor, Joseph right. Bell. Um, right, who which was, I read about uh, in your book. Um, and he was uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's teacher, one of his professors at the University of Scotland, because Conan Doyle was actually a physician. He right. was a trained doctor. Um, so yeah, I do think that, that it is... It is very similar, but I, you're absolutely right because you're dealing, you're helping people, but you're also dealing with human tragedy on a daily basis. And I, that's just, I, I don't know that I'd be able to do that. My sister is a doctor, so she actually 
every single day is saving lives. Neonatology, she saves premature babies. But I could never do what she does, not in terms of interest or talent, but you have infants die, you know, on a daily basis as well. And that just, you know, more power to the people who can deal with that and who are the the ones who take on that burden on themselves. We'll, we'll obviously get into, you know, kind of the, the techniques you've analyzed in Sherlock Holmes and why you went down that path. But has your sister ever told you what it was like? Let's say a baby dies. Mm-hmm. Baby is born and then dies. And she has to now go into that room and tell the parents. Has she ever told you what that's been like for her and how she deals with it? No, we've actually never talked about it, even though she's been a neonatologist for many, many years, because I've never asked. Have Um, you wanted to ask? I have wanted to ask, but I know that she's cried. Um, I know that, and I know that we've talked about the absolute joy that she feels when she saves a life that otherwise wouldn't have been saved. And she's had parents bring their kids years later to her and say, look, you know, this is my son, this is my daughter who wouldn't be here today. Um, without you. And I think that that's how, if I were to guess, I'm guessing that those moments are how she deals with the moments where she's not successful. The gratitude of of that. Yeah, I guess that's how you you balance it off. Yeah. But do you feel like, and because you've dealt with this in when you were investigating con men and, and maybe even in your other stuff, investigating Sherlock Holmes and investigating poker, do you think to be a doctor, it helps to be some kind of or at least be on the spectrum of a psychopath because <laughs> you have to you have to essentially here's what here's what a doctor does right in a very naive way you have to have get someone on a table completely knock them unconscious mm-hmm. cut them open well surgeon a surgeon, surgeon <laughs> right pull out their guts in yep. some cases yep re-stitch them up and and you have to be very impassive about it right because yeah. you can't that's why they don't let parents operate on their children, for instance, you have to totally view it as like a Rubik's cube puzzle Mm -hmm. and not have any emotions involved. Like this is like I'm programming a computer. I'm fixing this body. Well, I think that, no, I don't think that you need to have psychopathic tendencies. I mean, my sister aside, who's one of the kindest, just warmest people I've ever met. Um, But I think that even this actually will tie back to Sherlock Holmes very nicely. Um, I think that you can cultivate clinical detachment and an ability to be objective without having to be psychopathic. It's a way of training yourself to let go of your emotions. It's almost meditative um, in, and I think in its essence, because you say, okay, so I think that this is actually a common misconception about Sherlock Holmes, that he is psychopathic in some ways. And I don't think that that's true at all. Yeah, there's a conception Um, that he's psychopathic. There's a conception that he has... So at least in the Benedict Cumberbatch yep. BBC Sherlock, there's this conception that he might have an Asperger's yep. type situation. And but the way you describe it is very beautiful that actually it's almost like he's lives in the imagination. It's very creative and artistic. Yes. And I think that he actually, he experiences emotion. It's not that he doesn't feel emotion. It's that he's very capable of... He knows himself incredibly well. He's studied all of these techniques and he's in, he's very good at saying, okay, 
these are the emotions I'm currently experiencing. I recognize them so I can turn them off, so that I can realize that they're completely irrelevant to what I'm doing right now. So it's not that I see this beautiful woman and she doesn't affect me, and I don't think, wow, this is a beautiful woman. I do, but I realize that right now that's completely irrelevant, so I'm going to take that emotion, dismiss it, and have this thought process now where I don't use it as part of my decision. And that's something that we can actually all learn to do. It's it's hard. It's, and some emotions are more difficult to dismiss than others. And obviously, even Sherlock Holmes sometimes falls victim to his emotions. Right. And I think the important thing here is not, not to learn how to think like Sherlock Holmes so you can be a detective, but to learn his techniques as you describe them and lay them out to be more successful really at anything you do yes. in life. Like, so I've read this book twice. I read this book years ago when you first came on the podcast and I read it just recently to prepare for this one. So this is, you first came on, I think three years ago, three and a half years, mm-hmm. some, something like that. Ago. Yep. And you're, you know, you, you know, I'm skipping a few steps ahead in, in the book, but very important thing is to, is this meta awareness, like Sherlock Holmes, not only studies the case, but he studies his own reactions. He studies Watson's reactions and I don't know if it's directly related to reading the book, but uh, I've used this the way you describe meta-awareness in terms of investing. Mm -hmm. So can I give you this example? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's a fascinating parallel. You you tell me if it applies, but I feel like it very much resonates with what you wrote in this book. Um, And this has happened quite a bit, but I'll give kind of a stereotypical example. There was a company that wanted to meet me for Mm -hmm. me to invest in them. Mm -hmm. And, and I had an investment partner in this, but I was the one doing the work, meaning I was doing all the due diligence and the research and so on. And so I basically found 10 to 20 points where, whereby I would not want to invest under any circumstances to the point where I kind of thought they were largely a scam. And I still believe that. And, uh, uh, this is fairly recent that the company visited me and my investment partner on this situation said, look, they're flying into town from Vancouver or whatever. Can you just meet with them? We met with them right in the very next room. And I said, okay, but you have to promise me this. I know I'm going to ask all of these questions and they're going to convince me. Okay. So I'm actually using two of your books, yeah. the Sherlock Holmes and the Con Men one. Yep. I said, I know exactly that they're going to convince me. They're going to have answers. It's not like they're dumb. They're not. They're going to know that all the questions I have, other people probably are asking them, anybody who's done any amount of due diligence. So they're going to answer really successfully all of my questions, and I'm going to want to invest. I'm going to see this massive upside. So I'm going to come out of this meeting saying, you know, they answered everything and there's huge upside. We might as well invest. So you have to tell me there is no way we're going to invest. And that's exactly what happened. I asked all the questions. They answered them perfectly. They were very charismatic and personable, super smart. They had answers to everything that made complete sense. By the time I left the meeting, I was they had, It's like they they locked me up. Like I I I I felt they weren't a scam anymore. I felt this was a great investment. And my partner said, "Is like, look, I don't know anything. It seems like they did answer all the questions that you had, but you did tell me to tell you we cannot invest under any circumstances." So I said, "Okay," and we didn't invest. Well, that is very, very smart of you. And yes, I think that that's a great example. And I do think that it actually has parallels to both Mastermind and the confidence game. So one of the things that I think 
sometimes gets lost when people think of Sherlock Holmes is people dismiss Watson as kind of this, you know, secondary character who's a little bit bumbling, you know, not as not as brilliant as Holmes, even though he's a doctor, right? And he's a military doctor. doctor. A soldier. Exactly, a soldier. This is not someone to be dismissed. It's kind. Exactly. But I also think that Watson makes Holmes a much better detective because he forces Holmes to do several things. One, to actually go through his thought process so that you can spot holes in your logic that you might not if you don't have to explain it to someone else. And I think this is an incredibly important technique that we can use in our day-to-day life. So, so, so say that again, spot, he, 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 he spots holes. He spots holes in his logic that he wouldn't otherwise spot. Like what's so, an example? So um, for instance, if you right away jump to the conclusion that, you know, someone, because you've dealt with your Sherlock Holmes and you've dealt with similar cases in the past, you might think that, oh, this fits into the pattern. I know exactly what to do. But if you're forced to describe your thought process to Watson, you might start seeing differences and you might start saying, oh, wait, you know, this might not be the same after all. And we actually have some examples of cases like the adventure of the yellow face where Holmes is mistaken and where he becomes overconfident and he doesn't talk to Watson as much as he should. And then he tells Watson, and this is the second thing that Watson does for him. He says, if this ever happens again, basically do exactly what you asked. And this was the one where a woman, he was impressed with yes. Isabel Adler. No, what, what? That, that was a different one. The okay. yellow face is uh, the yellow faces where he, we won't give away the actual okay. story, but um, where he mistakenly thinks he knows the identity of someone and kind of the the reason for them being hidden away. And so what, what's the meta, is there, was there a meta weakness that led yeah, to Yeah, having- it was, it, it was a meta weakness. I think it was an overconfidence bred from overfamiliarity. He'd seen mm. similar dynamics in the past and he thought he knew exactly what type of case he was getting into. So it- um, and, and I think that that is actually, that's one of the things that that's one of the pitfalls of knowledge, you know, that if you don't question it and if you have, if you're such an expert, um, sometimes you might think that you're, that you're kind of at a point where, oh, I know this. I don't need to do all of the work because I've done this so many times before. And Holmes doesn't usually do that. Um, and Watson is there to help push him back and Holmes acknowledges that you know he screwed up this case. So, so, so on the so there's so much to unpack there. On the one hand, it's good to have a partner yes. who can check who can check you and say, "Listen, you've done this, this, and this before." Similarly, like in a meta way. Yep. And it's that's why a lot of good uh, investment firms have two people. Berkshire Hathaway has mm-hmm. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Yes. Microsoft had Bill Gates and Paul Allen. Google had Sergey Brin and. Larry Page. So it's it's good to have that that person mm-hmm. who understands your weaknesses. Like 15 years ago, I was running uh, a hedge fund where we would invest in other hedge mm-hmm. funds. And I had this tendency after we invested to suddenly panic that they were a scam, like a Ponzi scheme or something. And I would call up my partner and I'm like, look, there's this, this, this. They're definitely a scam. And he's like, relax. You do this with every single time. Mm-hmm. Just relax till Monday. It'll be it'll be fine. Yeah. You won't even be thinking about this money. And he was always right. So someone who knows you and can and then you start to figure out your own yes. meta weaknesses as a result. But I think it's hard to 
I think, I think there's two reasons people are overconfident and you talk about both reasons, uh, in the book. One is when you have, you, you divide up home style of thinking with Watson style yep. of thinking. So Watson, um, is kind of like represents someone who is just absorbed in all the cognitive biases and is not skeptical of how those cognitive biases are. He takes too many shortcuts in his thinking. Whereas shortcuts might might be good for everyday living, they're probably not good in extreme high stakes situations yep. like a crime, like a poker hand, mm-hmm. like a medical situation, and so on. But Watson has that, so he's taking shortcuts all the time and doesn't question himself. And but then there's also this overconfidence you get from, uh, like you say, too much experience. And like I'm trying to think of, like, could, do you have a poker uh, example? where you have a hand and you have a lot of experience at this point and you had to check yourself that maybe things were a little different than you thought or? I mean, I think that that happens all the time at the poker table. And one of the reasons why I think I was able to be successful quickly initially um, was that I questioned everything because I came at it with fresh eyes and there was never, I never had this process in my head like, oh, this is what people do here. This is what we always do here. So, excuse me, this is what we always do here. So I'm going to do it. But I think that as I've gained more experience, I've actually found myself doing it. Like for instance, you know, there is a rule that you always check to the pre-flop raiser, which means that whoever was the last person to bet before the flop or the the three cards in the middle comes out, you defer to them. You let them act first. You let them continue their story, so to speak. But sometimes it can actually be incredibly useful to do something called donk betting. First of all, just think of that term, donk betting. It sounds like something you shouldn't do, right? Do you want to be a donk? <laughs> do you want I first to- thought you said dunk, and I was thinking like that you just <laughs> over the top, go over slam the net. Dunk, and like yes. Slam dunk, yes. But yeah, donk doesn't donk. sound do good. Do you want to be a donk? And there's even a term to donk off your chips, you know, to to just... I never heard that term. Yeah, so, so it's... Um, but sometimes donk betting is actually incredibly powerful. And if you what was it? You do you like you lead instead of instead of waiting for the person who had the last aggressive action to act, you actually act before them. Right, because then you're signaling. You, you're kind of you anchoring bet, the conversation. You bet into them, yes, and that's that's hardly ever done. Um, and you can actually do it on every single street. And for those people who don't play poker, streets are kind of the next card that's dealt. Um, You can always donk bet, but a lot of times people will unthinkingly like check all three times because they weren't, they're out of position and they weren't the aggressor. Right, even though it's a common strategy to, uh, not to get into the weeds of poker, but it's a common strategy that the aggressor is just could also just be trying to get a free card. Exactly. And everybody just lets that yep, person. Exactly. Because I, I, when I'm trying that strategy and someone b- bets out, like you just said, yeah. donk bets, I didn't know that yeah. was the term, I get terrified because <laughs> I'm just trying to get the free card in some cases. Yes. And at least 50% of the cases, I'm just trying to get the free card. Yeah, and sometimes I get pissed when people donk bet into me. I get very mad. I say, why, you know, why are you doing that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm supposed to be the one who has the betting lead. You're not supposed to do that. So it can mess with your head. So donk betting can actually be incredibly powerful when employed correctly. But most people who who have a lot of experience 
won't do it. And there are good reasons why you don't do it, right? There are good reasons why playing out of position is bad. So there's a lot of reasons why checking to the pre-flop aggressor has become a rule. But if you don't question it, you don't identify the opportunities where it's good to break that rule. I had an experience um, last year in Montreal where I was playing with someone who's incredibly good, who is one of the best tournament players um, that I've ever played with. And I had the pre-flop lead. So I had raised and he'd called me out of the blinds. So what that means is that he's going to be out of position. I'm going to be the last to act on every subsequent part of the hand. And on the flop, he checked to me like he was supposed to, like a good boy. And I had had top pair and I was and I was very happy and I bet and he called. And then the turn card was just a horrible card because it gave me the nut flush draw, but it also completed all of the straight draws. And he led into me. He donk bet. And I thought, well, let me show you. I have top pair and the nut flush draw. I'm going to raise. And he knocked me out of the tournament because he had he understood this whole dynamic and he actually understood that spot perfectly and he led with his uh, with his straight. Right, and, so you, what, what do you have, like something like a 13% chance at that point? To yeah, get? no, it was, it was not very good. It was not good at all. Um, and I should never, you know, and he caught me off guard. I shouldn't have raised. That was totally stupid. You know, I should just call and see what happens on the river because he's telling me something with that unorthodox play. But I was just so upset that he was donk betting into me when I had already decided that I was going to bet myself. Right. So, 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 so he, so you thought the normal polite rules of poker exactly. should apply, <laughs> and he was saying no. But doesn't he signal immediately? He's signaling that he has a straight, and you were then saying he's probably bluffing. Well, he's not necessarily signaling because he's he's a good player. So he's not just going to do that with straights. What he's signaling is that he understands that he has more straights than I do on that mm-hmm. board because his range, the range of cards that he would call from the blinds is very different from the range of cards that I would raise from early position. Mm-hmm. So I would hardly ever have a straight there because I'm not raising queen nine from under the gun, usually, but he would defend his big blind with that all the time. So so it's one of these things where you understand at a deeper level, just in general, the dynamics of that specific position, so, that specific board. But he, would, but he would also do that with bluffs, right? He might do that with certain flush draws, with certain gut shots that didn't quite get there. So, so it's interesting because this, this is often, like in marketing, this is often called like a, a pattern disrupt. Mm-hmm. So for instance, you could have a car commercial where, you know, a handsome man, beautiful woman are driving in a car on a desert to escape to a better life. Mm-hmm. And that's a classic car commercial. Or you could have someone come on and say, you should never buy a car. They're in a car dealership, all these cars behind them. And they should, and they say, you should never buy a car again. It's bad for the environment. <laughs> There's going to be electric cars in the next five years. It's going to be self-driving cars. All of these truck cars behind me are awful to buy. Yeah. And that would be a pattern disrupt. Everyone will look up from mm-hmm. their dinners and say, what's this happening? Absolutely. And so and so that's what so tying it to Sherlock Holmes is he has to almost or a detective or someone thinking like Sherlock Holmes has to be able to step out of the narrative that is being yes. the, the classic narrative and 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 say, I don't have to follow the classic narrative. So in your case with poker, there was a classic narrative and you have to just step back and say, 
I don't have to let emotions rule me because the classic narrative is being disrupted. Or if, um, uh, you know, if, if, you, you know, Sherlock Holmes, I like how he'll take, you, you talk about observation a lot where we all kind of mm-hmm. look at the same things when we look at a scene, but he'll look at kind of unusual things. Like yes. if, 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 if Watson is tan in his face and they're in, here they are in England, maybe he just got back yep. from war. So yep. things like that. So he's, he, he observes things first without necessarily making a conclusion. And then kind of when he's satisfied, he's observed enough details. And, and he also has, and this is a separate technique, but he also has a healthy skepticism to the classic narrative, putting those together and then engaging in a third technique, which is imagination, almost yes. like thinking of what are all the possibilities given, given the classic narrative and given um, the range of things he's uh, observing that might not be so obvious, how can we how can we come up with other possible outcomes? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that you've identified kind of a lot of key steps that most of us don't employ on a regular basis. So it's, yes, he's he's incredibly creative, but in order to get to that point, he has to first absorb a lot of information, but also have breaks on himself and learn to take his time, learn to take a step back, not to react immediately. And what I was doing in the poker hand and what we often do in a lot of situations is you react yeah. and you you act. Well, and- well, well. You know what's interesting is like we're in a, we're we're doing this podcast in a comedy club. When a comedian gets nervous on stage, they tend to panic a little bit, yeah. and they tend to talk faster then, and the audience then pulls away even more, yeah. and it just becomes this death cycle. When actually the key is, is to recognize, oh, I'm about to panic, and then to actually talk slower. Like what I tend, what I notice with myself is my shoulders are a little tense when mm-hmm. I'm in that moment and I'm about to start talking faster. So I'll just relax my shoulders and move my arms back a little bit and talk slower. And that's the way to re-engage. Yes, and that and that comes from meta-awareness as well, from knowing yourself, from taking the time to sit down and query yourself and to recognize those patterns, to recognize it before it happens. Yeah. And a lot of people don't even take the time to do that. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb 
while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I 
how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. You point this out in the book, like you describe this notion of the brain addict and that um, Holmes is an expert on lots of things, for instance, and this is going to tie back to the point, but you point out how Holmes is an expert on, let's say he knows every prior criminal case ever, but he doesn't know what's happening in politics Mm -hmm. or the latest theater play out. Like he doesn't, so you you have to pick and choose. You have to curate what important information is going to be in your attic because you still, in order to have that meta-awareness, you have to have kind of a library of things that, you know, a library of these possible narratives given the circumstances. And I think a... I think I think people don't know how to do that curation. Mm-hmm. They don't. They put everything in yeah. the attic, or they do like Watson, where you know you you can't you can't do that pause, that detachment, that that curation on everything because then you would move too slowly in all parts of your life. And so you make the point that Watson is just living a normal life. Absolutely, and there's a reason for that because that's the best way to probably live life yeah. unless you're in these high stakes situations. That's the reason why we have these cognitive biases mm-hmm. is to have shortcuts in very, in, in the daily situations that, that don't require a lot of pausing and thinking. Mm-hmm. And often it's a sign of some other mental illness. If you pause too much yes. on easy situations. So how do you build, how do you know what to curate? And how do you start building this? <laughs> a, the skepticism in the only in the right places be the ability to detach only in the right places, the ability to observe <laughs> all these things, but only in the right places again, and then to start let the imagination yeah. run wild, but again, all only in the right places. Otherwise, you could become too paranoid every day and so on. Absolutely. Well, I think the the first step is to let go of that frame of only in the right places because that will paralyze you in a way because you will yeah. be seeking perfection right away. And I think what Holmes teaches us is that oftentimes you don't know and you don't know what you don't know and you don't know what's going to be irrelevant. So He's yes. Like Donald Rumsfeld there. <laughs> yeah, for a second. The, the known knowns, the known unknowns. So oftentimes- the unknown unknowns. Yes, exactly. I, I don't remember all of the knowns and unknowns we have, mm-hmm. but um, Rumsfeld was actually making a good point there. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that, I think that um, what Holmes would would tell you is that oftentimes we are actually too hemmed in by saying, okay, these are the things that are going to be relevant and these are the things that are not. He's actually quite flexible. So yes, he's an expert in a lot of things, but he also has these files and files and files and this just insatiable curiosity where he won't necessarily know something about X or Y, but he'll know where to look it up. He'll know that this interest kind of has existed. Um, and he'll know that for any given situation, you might need a slightly different base of knowledge. So as a detective, and that's actually, I think, to back up a second from from what I'm saying, 
the first kind of step in figuring out, okay, well, what's going to be in your permanent attic, right? Because every situation is different and you might need to put new things in there. You might need to have more information because you can't pre-plan what is going to be relevant. But I think before before that, it's what we were talking about before, this self-knowledge, this meta-awareness. I think that the number one thing that I would say is sit down alone with yourself and think, you know, what's important to me? Kind of what what do I want to accomplish? What kind of person do I want to be? What, you know, what kind of career do I want? What do I want to be in my daily life? Because that will inform what the elements of your background that will fit into your attic neatly so like- would be. So it's a kind of a pre-selection process. So Sherlock Holmes, you know, he knows that he is a detective. He's not a doctor, right? So he probably doesn't need to spend years and years in medical school. But he might need to figure out how to, you know, stitch up a a gun wound, for instance. Or he might need to understand (laughs) what a scar might mean. Exactly, exactly. So he'll need to have that knowledge, but not necessarily the depth of knowledge that Watson will have, right? So, So you make those types of choices once you figure out, you know, how do I want to go through life? And that's also how you choose what moments to really engage your Sherlockian brain as opposed to your Watsonian brain. You know, what matters to me? What are the situations that actually matter? And you're going to make mistakes. Sometimes you're going to think that something doesn't matter and you'll just kind of drift past it. And then in retrospect, you'll say, damn, you know, I wish that I had actually stopped there and paused and taken stock and really been much more proactive and much more mindful in that particular moment. So yes, we're going to mess up. That happens. Holmes messes up. But in general, if you figure out, okay, you know, these are the types of situations that are high high stakes for me. You know, I care about my business relationships, for instance. I care about my relationship with my boss. I don't have a boss, but I'm just giving you a, just a random example. All right. So in this conversation that we're going to have in two hours, I need to engage my kind of slow thinking. I need to make sure I'm not reactive. I need to make sure that I follow these kind of more Holmesian steps. But maybe, you know, in a the two hours leading up to that in my coffee room interactions, it's fine to be in the Watson mode and not be 100% on. So I think it's identifying the stakes for yourself. But for someone else, actually, those coffee room interactions might be much more important. They don't care about this job. They know they're going to quit. They don't care about the interaction with the boss. They care about the relationships with their coworkers. So they're going to engage system homes in the break room. They're going to really listen. They're going to be really trying to figure out where everyone is in their career, who's going to be a future ally when the person leaves the company, who might be you know, thinking in interesting ways. And your priorities just totally shift and the way you approach the two situations shift. You know, and, and it's interesting because you discussed this a little bit uh, uh, in terms of what to put in, in the brain attic, mm-hmm. as you call it, later on. And I thought this was fascinating. You, um, you say human, human learning is largely driven by something known as the reward prediction error. Mm-hmm. And that's a fancy way of saying you learn something better when you have passion for it. When it when learning more triggers dopamine, you get this reward in the brain. And so Holmes, probably from an early age, was addicted to, you know, solving crimes and stories of people solving crimes. So that's why he knows all of these cases dating back 
for the past 100 years. Even when Lestrade, the p police chief or mm -hmm. detective or whatever, doesn't know them because he wasn't as passionate as, as Holmes. So it's almost like, I wonder, like you say here, like you could sit back and like, what kind of life do I want to lead? What kind of career do I want to have? Can you sit and really rationally reason that out? Or, or do you let passion be a compass for that? And how do you kind of light that fire? Because some people yeah. always ask, like how they're stuck in their cubicle jobs. They don't often pay attention to where sure. the passion is, the compass is pointing them. Yeah, I think I think that it's an iterative process. First of all, I don't think that you can just sit down and figure out where you want your life to go, period. And you're like, okay, this is it. This is my next 20 years. Got that, you know, got that checked off because people change and circumstances change and you have to remain open-minded. And, you know, we, we should remember that Sherlock Holmes left being a detective for a long time and had his period of soul searching and you know, wherever it was, Tibet, Himalayas, no one quite knows where he went, India, but he why, why traveled think, the world. Why do you think and he did that? I think he became dissatisfied with his life as a detective and he wanted to query himself and see who he was and what, what was still important to him. And he ended up coming back and coming back to being a detective. I mean, obviously, as readers and as people who know history, we know that Conan Doyle got sick of Sherlock Holmes and killed him off, and then there was a huge outcry from the readers, and he had to bring him back. So that's the great hiatus but, but, um, but there's another... in, a more, in a more human way. But I think that uh, that actually goes, that says something about Sherlock Holmes, right? Because Conan Doyle is his creator, and if Conan Doyle is getting bored with it, maybe Sherlock Holmes is well, and getting I wonder, bored with I it. I wonder if this happens to Conan Doyle because in one of the Sherlock stories, he and I forget where I read about this or if I read it in the story itself, in one of the Sherlock Holmes stories, and maybe it's the Hound of the Baskervilles, but uh, he's not sure whether to take on a case because he's not sure whether he'll get credit for solving it. And he's worried the police will are just coming to him and then they'll take all the credit. I wonder if he was concerned about validation for the cases he would solve, and that was part of his reward system that would feed these things. I wonder with Conan Doyle, if he was if he felt he was getting too validated on Sherlock and not yeah. on other aspects of his career. Well, that's definitely true of Conan Doyle. I mean, he said that he thought that the Sherlock Holmes stories were the least important thing that he had done. He wanted people to read his serious things. Um, and of course, no one remembers the serious Cargill, stuff. Right? Yeah, there, there were there were a lot of things. He wrote ghost stories that I actually think are great. Mm -hmm. You know, he had he had a lot of different things that he was working on, um, but people loved Sherlock Holmes and he thought it wasn't serious enough. And I think that, I, I don't actually think that Holmes is someone who needs external validation as such. I think he gets, I think the reason he's good at what he does is that he derives pleasure just from the process of doing. Of course, he needs to be compensated. I think that, a lot of people would hear what I just said and say, oh, well, you know, this is why art should be free because you derive pleasure from the process of doing. No, you also need to survive. So Holmes gets paid, and I think he he correctly needs right. to be. But getting paid is different from But getting paid is different credit. from public credit. And I don't actually think that most times he doesn't need that public credit, mm -hmm. and he's happy to have Lestrade or Scotland Yard or whoever is working Gregson, who's ever is working the case with him at that particular moment, um, he's happy to have them take the credit because he knows that he solved it. And but but he that's knows. also because he kind of constructs a hierarchy where 
he doesn't need credit maybe from the masses, but he needs credit from yes. Lestrade. Like he yes, wants he needs o- yes, he needs credit from the people who matter. Mm-hmm. And I think that he Watson's validation is important. Mm-hmm. Um and we've mentioned briefly Irene Adler or the woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that her validation is important. I think there are people whose validation really matters to him, but it's not necessarily, you know, external credit for this particular thing. Um, and I think that actually this goes back to your earlier question about passions. I think one of the things that makes him so good is he's curious. He has this boundless curiosity about the world. And so he's able to dig deep into these different areas of knowledge that are quite esoteric if it's important for the case. And he's able to follow his curiosity and to keep growing as a result. I think it's, to me, it's one of the things that really gets at his personality isn't kind of this emotional detachment, but the fact that he calls what he does a game. He says the game's afoot. And I think that that's so telling. And that, I think, goes to the heart of why he's good at it, because he's engaged with it. He's curious. He's passionate. And to him, this is a game, not in the sense that, you know, oh, human lives are a game, but in the sense that the process is exciting. Right. So so that allows him to have this amazing detailed memory of every case he's encountered. Just like I imagine, you know, you started playing poker a little over a year ago. You had never played it before. My guess is something, a a switch flipped and you became passionate about it. And I bet you remember every single poker hand since then, pretty much. Absolutely. No, there was definitely a switch where at the beginning I you know, I did not care at all about poker. No knowledge of it. I didn't know if I was supposed to care about it. It was a tool. It was a thing that I was using to explore all of these concepts, you know, chance, probability that I was interested in for my book. And then as I got into it, I, I and as I learned about the game, I realized that it's a beautiful game. It's a fascinating game. It's a game that engages you on so many, exactly, on so many levels. And then I did develop a passion for it. Um, And yes, that definitely, I think, helped me become better because I enjoy studying because when you study, you're learning more, you know, and and it's no longer a, a task. You know, it's something that is, sure, it can be hard, it can be frustrating, but you know why you're doing it and there's bigger purpose to it and it's opening up parts of your mind that you hadn't opened up before. And so you you do learn more, but you also then understand the game at a deeper level. And yes, your memory improves. So at the beginning... For so, that topic. Yes, absolutely. Not for, no, not in general. Like if you were playing Monopoly at the same time, I doubt you would remember every Monopoly no, game. absolutely but not. you remember probably every face, every bet. I remember the, not every single one, because this is like Holmes and Watson. You have to, if you're, you can't be Watson, you can't be Holmesian about every single hand. You know, I don't remember the seven deuces that I folded. You know, I don't remember those hands, but all the important ones, like the one we talked about from, you know, Montreal, I remember that hand. I remember who it was with. I remember where I was sitting. I remember where he was sitting. You remember all of those different details to the hands that matter. And it's actually, it's been a very interesting process with Eric Seidel, my my coach, because at the beginning, um, the main way you learn is by discussing hands um, and figuring out, you know, why did you do this? What could you have done differently? Could you have thought about this in a different way? And 
at the beginning, it was so hard for me. I couldn't remember the details of hands. I'd mess up things. Um, you know, I'd mess up how, you know, how many chips people had, the size of the bets, the positions. I'd mess up all sorts of things. And then at some point I realized that it was, and some of it is from experience, right? It, my mind wasn't as occupied anymore by by all of these details because I got used to them. But some of it was interest because I could now, I saw the hand in a different way. I saw the interactions. I saw the interplay of the cards. And so what we know about memory, what we know about how things fit into your brain attic is the more points of encoding we have, the more rich our experience the more rich our memory, the easier it will be to remember because we're engaging our senses, we're engaging the knowledge base that we already have. And so we place it correctly into our attic. We file it in the right place. We'll be able to access it better. So not only was I building kind of a base of knowledge, but I was also, I think, engaging in a depth of perception um, and pattern recognition that I wouldn't have been able to attain, first without a little bit of experience, but secondly, without passion and interest and curiosity. Well, well, and so that, so you call it the, the RP, this reward, you know, basically this, basically dopamine start, became the glue that, that took all these experiences and put them in your brain attic. And if you think about it, like what a common memory technique is called the memory palace, yeah. where if you're trying to memorize a set of numbers, you, you create this palace in your head and you, associate each number with something in the palace, presumably something that uh, this um, an imaginary item in your palace is something you care about and you figure out a connection between that number and this thing you care about. And that becomes this me memory technique to remember even sequences of hundreds of, mm -hmm. of numbers. And that's almost an artificial technique because you don't really care about sequences of numbers, but but uh, the, the, the fact that you love uh, what, you were what you were remembering here or memorizing similar to how Holmes was memorizing these prior cases, mm -hmm. is that the dopamine becomes the, the, the connective glue in the attic, the, 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 the thing that connects these items to parts of the attic. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. It's not the whole it's not the whole thing. I don't want to say it's all dopamine, but but that's definitely a huge part of it because when when an experience engages you, when you do have those types of emotional dopamine, driven connections, they do become more powerful. And what we know about emotional memories as opposed to just non-emotional ones is that you're going to remember the central event much better. Your memory for the details is going to be fuzzy. So it doesn't, dopamine doesn't actually enhance memory, period. It enhances memory for centrality. So for instance, you probably, you know, when something is incredibly emotional, like 9-11, for instance, people will remember the key, the central thing, but they'll mess up a ton of details um, around what was happening, but they'll be sure that all of them are accurate because it was so emotional. So you have to be careful and so, you have to so realize like that the central event becomes more solidified, but you might, you know, you might, you might mistake kind of some of the peripheral characters, some of the peripheral things that weren't as important because your brain is really being taken up by that central real estate. Now, poker is a little bit different. Like 9-11 is extreme, right? That's not dope. That's just like, you know, dope. Right. That's one huge event. That, exactly. Poker is lots of little events. Exactly. Holmes so, looking at lots of 
not little events, but hundreds of right. cases. And and what happens with the reward prediction error, the RPE, is that your expectation of reality isn't isn't in line with what happens. So there's an error of prediction. You're expecting a certain level of reward um, and suddenly something else happens. And so you learn because there's a mismatch. And so oftentimes there, what ends up happening is, well, if you didn't realize you were interested in this, you know, and suddenly you become interested, um, you have a learning process. But in poker, what happens is, you know, if you're expecting a certain thing, once you start learning to recognize it and that expectation is broken, you learn. That's new information. What what I'm curious about, though, is so with Holmes, some things he has no knowledge of whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But like like we've said, he has like he knows like the minutia of all these hundreds of yeah. prior uh, criminal cases. And how does someone f- kind of discover the the topics or the things yeah. that they could? more easily learn than other things. Well, I think that that, you know, that gets to the heart of curiosity. Holmes never dismisses something because he thinks it's going to be boring or he never just says, "Oh, well, I absolutely must learn this." He is open to a lot of things and he reads a lot. I mean, let's just pause for a second to see, I mean, obviously he's a fictional character, so he has lots and lots of time. But look at what he does. I mean, he doesn't just solve cases. The guy reads encyclopedically. He goes to the opera. He plays the violin. He goes to art museums. So exposing yourself to things. He is exposed to experiences, to people, to different inputs all the time. I mean, I would have had zero clue that I liked poker, that it was a way to actually improve my thinking had I not put myself in that situation. Had I not said, okay, rather than dismissing it and saying, oh, I don't like casinos, I don't like poker, which is true, I actually hate casinos, and um, I... But I didn't think I would like poker because I don't, I've never played cards. I'm not a games player. Like, why in the world would I do that? And I let myself be guided by someone I really admired, John von Neumann. You know, someone I've never met, obviously, because our <laughs> lifespans didn't quite work out that way. But, you know, a brilliant mind. And I thought, well, if he, you know, if someone like that thinks poker is interesting, like, let me be open to it. Let me try it out. Let me be open to that knowledge. And I think a lot of people aren't. They dismiss a lot of things and they say, oh, that's going to be boring. But have you noticed that, because I've noticed this about myself, there are certain things I don't really care about, like sports. I'm not a sports fan at all. I don't follow any sports. I don't care. calm down. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, if you, you know, certain articles or certain books about sports are just absolutely riveting. Like, I can read Michael Lewis on sports. Yeah, I was just going to say Moneyball <laughs> was a fascinating because it's a way of, because you probably appreciate how they analyze the data. Exactly. I, I started, I picked up Moneyball because I knew I liked Michael Lewis. And even though I didn't want to pick up Moneyball, I was like, oh my God, why am I doing this? Like, I'm not going to like this book. And I opened it and I devoured it. I thought, oh, this is fascinating. I still don't like baseball, but but this is really interesting. And people who are passionate about a topic and who understand that topic can make even the most boring things just come to life right. and be interesting. So so it's, it's sort of like you have to find different ways to casually expose yourself to lots of things. Yes. 
and then there's a third. So so either reading or doing. Yeah. But then there's a third step of kind of like paying attention. Like did this just get me yeah. excited, and yes. now I want to learn a little more. So you double down. I think a lot, and I think. Do you think this is a muscle that the, yes. that kind of recognizing that? Absolutely, flame? absolutely. I think that actually gets to the heart of mastermind, mm. um, to this mindfulness, which is kind of the Holmesian approach and mindlessness, which is kind of going through the motions and not stopping, not being present, not fully experiencing what things are happening. Because mindfulness is being observant, sure about the world. It's knowing how many steps lead up to 221 B Baker Street, but it's also being observant about yourself. And it's learning to read yourself. It's learning to read the cues that your body is giving off all the time. And it's learning to figure out what's going on in your head. I mean, we all have streams of consciousness that are constantly going on. And most of the time we never pause to figure out, you know, what is, what is it? What am I thinking? And sometimes I've had this experience a lot. I don't know if you have, where you're suddenly... Th- thinking about something or singing a song and you're like, wait, how did that, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. You know, why am I humming this tune or why am I suddenly thinking about strawberry ice cream? And then it's a very fun exercise for me to stop and just try to go back through my thought process and figure out what in the world triggered where I am right now. It can be hard, but it's something that's trained and it's something where you start learning to notice how you're reacting to things, how your body is reacting to things. You know, are you enjoying something? Are you not? Are you happy? Are you stressed? Are you calm? Are you angry? Um, We are actually oftentimes really bad at reading ourselves because especially I think it's very hard in the modern world where we have so much going on and so many sensory inputs all the time and we never have to disconnect. Right? You never actually have to just be bored and sit down with nothing. And Holmes is very good at cultivating pockets of quiet, of, of cultivating those moments where he can flex that muscle so that then when he's bombarded by inputs, he can use it. He can call upon it because that's the wrong time to start trying to cultivate it. Yeah, it's interesting. Have you, have you um, there's these, there, I just read this article today about something called dopamine fasts. Oh, Which, yeah. That's bullshit. Okay. Right. <laughs> There's just this idea that the, these people in Silicon Valley who are overwhelmed by stimulus, they take that's these just, breaks from yeah, things. Yeah, no, that's just complete pseudoscientific bullshit. All right. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll agree with you. I don't know anything about it. But, but um, the idea of learning how to do nothing, that that's an art— that's not bullshit, and that's been around forever. And yeah, people actually do get re-energized by being in nature, and it, it happens on a lot of different levels. There's actually a physiological level where um, a lot of people who've studied trees realize that um, trees give off certain particles that actually help our immune system and help us think in different ways. Um, but it's also just being disconnected and being quiet and act, and just having time to think. And I think that that is something that's, you know, it's not a dopamine fast. Like the reason that that's bullshit is dopamine is just released by so many different things and dopamine is good. And, you know, it's, it's I just... I smell crack to get it, so... <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, but it is good to to learn to cultivate kind of an inner quiet but it, it seems, like you said, it seems like this really is the at least 
not the entirety, but the core of what Sherlock Holmes yes. is doing. Like he found, you know, but, but, you know, by clearing the deck with, as you call it, distance in the mm -hmm. book, like he takes distance every now and then yes. to, to take a break by clearing the deck, so to speak, and then exposing himself to new experiences or reading things mm -hmm. or whatever, he's able to find those different passions that he wants to learn yes. more. He recognizes in himself, oh, I would like to learn more about this. And then he does. Yes. And I think a lot of people, I think, you know, like, and, and the thing is, I think some people want to be detectives and be observational like Sherlock Holmes, but others, how to think like Sherlock Holmes is not how to be a detective. Right. It's how to be great at whatever it is, how to be a Sherlock Holmes level of unique greatness at whatever it is you're fascinated by. So imagine someone who's a child psychologist. Mm -hmm. They might not care about how people are, you know, different crimes. Sure. But they'll remember every single case study uh, or experience they've had in being a therapist for children. They'll remember, mm -hmm. oh, this, this case reminds me of when I analyzed this other child 15 years ago or yeah. whatever. So, so again, it's not, it, it, it's not about like, how can I um, solve crimes? It's about how I can, um, again, think in this unique way about the things that are important to me yes. and important to maybe others. Yes. I think that that's, that's exactly right. And, but, but then it lets me ask, like, like you mentioned that the, he knows the number of steps going up to 220, yeah. um, 221B Baker Street. And I forget the number of steps, but he, he Watson doesn't know and he knows and he points out, like, why do, haven't you been observing? You've done this mm -hmm. 15 times. Why does he remember? Why is that detail important to him? Well, because for him, he is, for him, the physical environment is incredibly important because that often has the clue to solving crimes. So it's important to notice things like how many steps are there leading up to X place, whatever it is, because, you know, if is someone out of breath or not, that tells me about their physical fitness. If it's two steps, you know, if it's 10 steps, if it's 17 steps, uh, yeah. it's a different. So I think that for him, those types of physical cues are actually incredibly important. For someone like me, it doesn't matter how many steps lead up to, to where, because that's not something that is a crucial detail to... Playing better at poker, for Exactly, instance. or to writing better books. But... If I'm being a journalist and I'm writing a story and I'm writing, you know, about a particular house or about a particular family that lives in a particular house, well, then all of a sudden maybe it becomes important. So maybe I should learn how many steps there are from floor one to floor two. Right. Like, like so, for instance, if, if I'm just thinking of a specific case for a reporter, if you had to walk up 21 steps on yeah. a brown, to get to a brownstone and then the person you're interviewing is in a wheelchair, yep. obvious that you, you would be remiss to not be curious exactly. about how he gets up the steps every day. Exactly. And if it's 21 steps to get to their brownstone and all the other brownstones on the street have, you know, 10 steps, did they have that built? Did they have a grander staircase built? What does that tell yeah, you about that person? Yeah. Or, or you know, why they did, wanted that house. Exactly. Why did they want that house? Do they like to feel taller than everyone else in Superior? Does it that help their... Me. <laughs> so, so you know, that's when those details become important. So for Holmes, it's just that physical details are something that's important about being a detective specifically. Right, so, so he he actually, I disagree with Holmes here. He makes an important point, and I think that's why he shames Watson here, where he says, you know, you only see, I both see and observe. Crucial line, 
the line that I think embodies so much about what Sherlock Holmes is. But I think he's unfairly blaming Watson here because why the hell does Watson care how many steps lead up to 221B Baker Street? Well, and you you point out in a, a, a different section, um, I'll, I'll, I'll come at this in a different way. It seems like there's two types of learning for Holmes or two types of exercises. There's the one exercise where he, he when he's doesn't have a case to solve and he's just hanging mm-hmm. out, he's going to read about old cases, he's going to learn, he's going to study them to a level of detail and interest and passion that other people wouldn't necessarily do about criminal cases that might be 100 years old. Yeah. But then there's this other thing he does, which, which you point out, which is he probably has this set of exercises. Given that he wants to be a great detective and he's mm-hmm. passionate about that, he has maybe a set of exercises. Like you describe one exercise where every time he meets somebody, he tries to figure things out about them. Yep. That's why he's so... That's why after years of doing that, he's so amazing at mm-hmm. deducing, oh, Watson was injured in his left arm and he just yep. came from Afghanistan. And like everyone's like, how did you know that? But yep. he's, he's exercised that muscle thousands and thousands of times. Yep. Or maybe like you just said, every time he goes to a new location, it's just an exercise for him. Okay, how many steps? How many steps, how many windows, how many, you know? Yes, exactly. Right, so he exactly. probably has like a set of exercises that he knows mm-hmm. are important for a case, like observing the individual, observing um, peculiarities of the location, mm-hmm. and you know, figure how do you figure out? Given what you're interested in, how do you figure out what those exercises should be? Yeah, I mean, that's, because not everyone, like you say, not everyone should count the steps everywhere yeah. they go. Well, I think that that you know, we keep coming back to this, but it's it's coming back to kind of that meta awareness and that self knowledge, and trying to figure out. You know, it's a lot of it has to do with taking time to reflect and to think before doing, which we often don't do because, you know, it feels like you're wasting time or it feels like you're not being productive because all you're doing is kind of just sitting and thinking. Um, I think the best thinkers realize that a lot of great work gets done um, in those moments. And oftentimes you don't see, you miss things because you didn't take that time because you didn't plan ahead, because you didn't kind of have any sort of mental framework going into a situation. So I think that if you kind of figure out what it is you want to do, what it is you're interested in, and what you want to accomplish, then you actually have to take the time to think through, okay, well, what are the important things for success here? What types of things do I need to do? What types of things do I need to notice? What kind of things do I need to learn? What kind of person do I have to be to be successful here? You might not have all those answers, but at least you've started asking the questions and then you might figure out ways to acquire the answers. So Holmes doesn't always have the answers to everything, but he'll say, oh, you know, I know this foremost art expert. Let's go to him. You know, let's hear him talk about what he thinks of this particular situation. Ah, so so that's a case where uh, uh, a self-awareness where he, he realizes he needs to know, get some art knowledge to solve a case, but he's never, maybe he's never been particularly passionate about art. So he delegates, just like we might delegate to Google now, large areas of knowledge. Yeah. He delegates to this art expert, the art knowledge he might need, and he knows he's going to get reliable knowledge. Exactly, exactly. And maybe when he's just starting out as a detective, he might not necessarily know, you know, all of the skills he's going to need, all of the exercises he's going to need. And so maybe what he does is, and 
We have no evidence that he did this, but maybe he seeks out the people who are considered some of the best detectives and looks at what they do and learns from that and tries to figure out, oh, okay, like, let me write down, these seem to be some interesting routines. Here's what they don't do. Here's what they miss. Um, maybe, you know, these are the books that seem relevant. He, it's it's this just being open to the fact that you might be able to get different information from different places. Holmes loves to spend time at the mortuary and looking at dead bodies with, you know, cadavers and trying to figure out, okay, you know, how do humans work? And well, it's interesting because you look at a uh, hundred years later now, the whole idea of forensic science has become its own genre of yes. crime fiction. And it was actually, and it was just starting out at the time. And Conan Doyle, I think, was one of the first people who realized that this was incredibly important. Um, and he actually knew kind of the origins of, he was very interested in the origins of forensic science. You, you know what this reminds me of a little bit? It reminds me of people who, They've, they've watched a thousand movies and they say, well, I've watched a thousand movies. I'm an expert. I could, <laughs> I could make a movie or I could be a critic. But the, the reality is, unless you've been passionately interested, all, like, like if, if I watch a movie, I'm just going along for the story. Yep. And that's all I want to do. Yep. But whereas other people might, say, might ask, why did the director use that angle for the yes. shot? Why did the director start moving a close-up on the person while they were making this passionate speech? Why yes. did the music change? Um, uh, but a movie maker might not say, a movie maker then might even say, well, how did this movie get distributed? Or yeah. how, what, how, did, how does the, the actors, different actors get paid? But they might not say, well, if I'm successful with a movie, I'm going to have to pay tax. They might not be an expert on taxes, yep. so they'll go to an accountant and say, yep. you take care of this. I'm going to focus on the next movie. So it's that kind of, but, and again, it's like, you know, the Watson approach might be, I've seen a lot of cases, I could solve a case. Yep without having that kind of passionate learning plus continual exercise of the micro skills you figured out you needed to know from the learning. Absolutely. But um, I will say that everything you just said also comes from knowledge and self-awareness. You know what, that you don't know a lot of these things. You know what it takes to actually have expertise, to actually be able to comment on something. And I'm sure you're familiar with the, everyone at this point is familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah, it came which, up yesterday <laughs> in two podcasts. Yeah, I mean, it comes up all the time, especially now, because there's this illusion of knowledge that we all have because, you know, you read, you read about it on the internet, you see a tweet about it, and suddenly you're an expert. Well, well, well I don't think the Dunning-Kruger bias, by the way, is a bad thing. Because, like, like when I... Well, it's definitely protective for the ego. It's protective of the ego. So, so, the, so the whole idea is, is that whenever you start something you're passionate about, you think you're better than you are. So... Well, not necessarily. It's, it's just thinking you're better than you are without any knowledge. You don't have to even be passionate about okay. something. I might have it read... It tends to happen to me more <laughs> I might have read I'm, an article about plumbing and suddenly think that I know how a toilet works. Oh, right. Or like anybody, <laughs> anybody who switches to the keto diet is suddenly exactly. a nutritional expert. Yes, so, absolutely. So all of a sudden, exactly. Right. But here, here's why I don't think it's such a bad thing. Um... I enjoy the Dunning-Kruger bias <laughs> and I indulge in it. Like when I, I I've been writing since um, 1990 and the first four years I was writing, I would write every single day. I thought I was the greatest writer since <laughs> Hemingway. And of course I was awful. I wrote four novels, dozens of short stories, 
Nothing would get published. Publishers wouldn't, I wouldn't even get a form letter back. I would never get any response back. <laughs> and so I was horrible. But because I thought I was good, I kept doing it. And I kept reading and I kept writing every day. I wrote every single day. And that ultimately got me to the point where I realized, oh, there's so much more to learn. And that's when you actually start getting good. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But you have to have the awareness to realize to have that moment of realization. And yeah, I do think that it's great, but you, you're actually, that's a different manifestation of the Dunning-Kruger effect because oftentimes the way it manifests itself is someone just reading a lot of books and saying, yep, um, or not even reading a lot of books, reading a few things, saying, I know how to write, like, oh, no, I'm a great writer. They don't even bother to write a novel. You took it actually to a different level right away you were doing, you were practicing, you were, you were actually writing. And sure, you might have had, I think it's a little bit different. It's not that you didn't, it's not that you had an overinflated kind of sense of your knowledge. You had, it was a little bit more about ego. You had an overinflated sense of your skills. That that sounds right. But, (laughs) but, but, and, and it's related. Obviously, that's part of the Dunning-Kruger effect. But the Dunning-Kruger effect is also, you know, just about a complete lack of knowledge of your own ignorance. But I, I think I think what happens is, so you have this Dunning-Kruger effect and everyone around you thinks, is he smoking crack or what? Because right. like, this is awful. And either you stop at some point or you develop... You, you develop some knowledge that you don't yeah. know something and you start And you start learning. Learn. But it takes a specific personality to actually start learning because there's also a third option. So you've said either stop or start learning. Then there are the people who just keep doing it and refuse to acknowledge that they're not good and refuse to learn because they think they already know everything there is to know. Um, right, right. So I that guess, also exists. So I guess there's, we're kind of breaking down learning. There's kind of like, learning the history, right? Mm-hmm. So Sherlock Holmes learning all these prior cases. Yeah. Um, well, there's a, a prior thing to that, which is he developed some passion and curiosity yeah. for yeah. for criminal cases. So there's learning all the prior cases mm-hmm. and analyzing them to figure out what skills did this detective have? What skills mm-hmm. did not this detective did not have? Then there's exercise and experience. So um, he exercises with each person, figuring out, you know, trying to do a cold mm-hmm. read of that person. He ex- exercises in each location, trying to do a read of that location. So that's something you build up, mm-hmm. like a muscle you build build up. And then there's this exercise of trying to figure out the unknown unknowns. So, <laughs> so you ask why on Thank as you, many things as possible. <laughs> so for instance, for writing... At some point, you say, ah, writing is just, I'm going to just tell a good story with some fun characters. Sure. But then at some level, you figure out, well, why why is this author not using adjectives at all in The Stranger? Or I'm thinking of Camus yeah, and The Stranger. Yeah. He doesn't use adjectives because it's so it's such a cold, you know, almost heartless character. Right. Whereas other books like The Great Gatsby is, 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 has, is all flowery. Yep. It's not a... It's, it's not a choice of the author it's almost a choice of the story and you start to ask why what is it about the story that is motivating mm-hmm. structurally how they're writing so anyway i'm just saying there's like these micro yes. things that you start to notice i'm sure i could go to see a great movie i'll just enjoy the movie but someone who wants to be a filmmaker is again asking these kind of micro absolutely consequential questions absolutely how does this happen how or do for they- a poker player you might you have to ask to be a great poker player 
why did this person make this bet in this situation? That's exactly right. And that's actually why I think playing poker has helped me with writing and has helped me with a lot of other things. Because if you're going to get good, you actually have to break down the process in a way you're never forced to. I mean, no one ever forces you to read a book and, tr- and stop and actually break down, okay, why is this structure working? Why did the author make these choices? You know, why does this scene transition work? Um, in poker, unless you ask those questions, you're not going to improve as a poker player. Right. It's actually, for poker, it's actually fundamental. Yep. And the funny thing is about with, we'll talk about Dunning-Kruger again, a lot of like average home players, like they just play with their family and friends, yeah. they think they're good. Yep. Like, oh, I beat my friends at the table. Yep. But they're just playing their hand and they're bluffing yep. and... Yep. You know, but they have never learned the subtlety to ask. You have to kind of always put people on a range and you ask why mm-hmm. they did things and how they've done things in the past. What other, what are the statistics? What have yeah. you seen in the past? So, so, uh, I don't know. It's just the whole, the whole process of, of learning is interesting. Yeah. And, and Sherlock Holmes, I think, embodies it very well. And also, you know, one of the things I love about the stories and about how Conan Doyle develops them is there are some stories where he goes wrong and where he makes these big mistakes and where people die um, and, you know, where he's just completely off base. And that's not just humanizing, but I think it actually gets to the core of the learning process that no matter, you know, unless unless you have the humility to realize, even if I'm Sherlock Holmes, the world's greatest detective, I will sometimes fuck up and that's okay. Um, and I'm going to have to learn from it. I'm going to have to acknowledge that I don't know everything and I'm going to have to have some sort of, you know, internal gauge or external helper that will tell me, okay, this is, this was wrong. You, you did something wrong. I'm going to keep learning. And unless you realize that, then you're not going to keep learning. You are going to stagnate. You are aren't going to be the world's best detective anymore. So I think that the fact that Conan Doyle actually inserts that into the stories is really important because that's how true learning works. Once you stop making mistakes and stop, you know, stop recognizing your mistakes, you stop learning. Well, well, look at the poker hand you described to me earlier. It was a poker hand where you lost. Yes. And there was the day he had the straight. And so that's probably where you probably learn more. And I'm assuming you then discuss that yes. with your, your coach, uh, that exact hand and every detail of it. You probably learn more from that hand than 10 hands that you've won. Absolutely. You always learn more from the hands where you screw up. Do you think you Sherlock mistakes? Holmes had, before the, the novels start, before the chronology <laughs> of the novels start, do you think he l- learned a lot from failure? Is that ever discussed? That's not discussed too much, but I think I, I'm sure he did um, because... How else does one learn? He he wasn't perfect from the beginning. He's not even perfect as Sherlock Holmes. Um, have has there been? Uh, I forget. Has there been movies or shows uh, based on a young Sherlock? Um, there have been. There have been definitely reimaginings of mm-hmm. a, of a young Sherlock. Yes. And, and does he make more um, mistakes in those? Um, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I I am not as well versed in the Sherlockian lore as someone who who has really spent years and years on this. And there are lots of people. There are people who are just Sherlock experts who love this and it's their passion. And I love Sherlock Holmes, but i it's not like I've had a driving passion my whole life to learn everything about everything related to Sherlock Holmes. I'm content with Conan Doyle, but there are so many people who are experts at this, who know this, 
who've learned about it who retain all of the details in a way that I can't mm. because I might have realized, oh, you know, this spinoff novel exists or, oh, this TV show exists that went into young Sherlock. Um, and I don't know. I haven't been able to retain the details of it because it didn't speak to me in the same way because I was interested in it insofar as I'm interested in Sherlock Holmes, but it wasn't something that was a central passion, which is a very good illustration of what we were talking about when it comes to memory. Right. Well, because you're focusing on how he thinks now, not necessarily the entire process of how he got there. And when I say now, I mean in the Conan Doyle uh, uh, books. Um, but, but, But what we're saying sort of suggests that maybe he got this passion he maybe had a little bit of, like anybody else, mm-hmm. he had a little bit of this Dunning-Kruger bias, made mistakes, and and was aware enough to learn from them, yep. figure out what exercises to do to improve them, what books yep. to read to improve, uh, what things he just needed to start delegating, yep. and 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 so on. And then and then having the meta awareness on future failures to figure out how to break it down and learn from it. What about the the the? It seems like the final aspect which you discuss is deduction. And you mm-hmm. you make the beautiful point that everyone sort of assumes he's making logical deductions. Here are the facts. Now we're going to make a logical mm-hmm. uh, deduction. When that's not what happening, what's happening at all. He's Everyone else is using supposed logic and Sherlock is having this little bit of distance so that the, the, he doesn't make any basic assumptions in the, in the Watson style of thinking. And then he lets his imagination come up with yeah. options. I think that it's an undervalued part of Sherlock Holmes's thinking because people think of him as this kind of cold, rational detective. And yes, he is rational, but he has the not just the capacity, but the appreciation for creativity that a lot of people don't credit him with because they don't think that being a detective or especially being a Sherlock Holmes is a particularly creative profession. But what he realizes that a lot of the detectives that are around him do not, that Watson does not, is that you have to cultivate this ability once you've gathered all the knowledge, once you've done all your police work, once you've done your detecting, you need to cultivate the ability to step back And to actually, rather than in the heat of the moment come to any conclusions, to just look at the patterns from a higher ground, so to speak, to be able to see, okay, what are the possibilities here? Because sometimes the most obvious possibility won't be the correct one, but it will seem logical and solid enough that unless you also look at all the alternatives, you'll be like, oh yeah, this is good. You know, you won't even realize that there's something else there. It will be so incredibly persuasive. But he says, no, take the time to actually look at all these pieces, play with them. You know, if it's a puzzle, look at at how they fit together. Maybe you found one way to solve the puzzle, but there are other ways, and maybe the way you solved it actually isn't the way the puzzle is meant to be solved. That's not the solution. It just seems like a solution. But once you've taken the time to play with it, you find the actual solution that hits all of the boxes because what you might not have realized is that when the instructions said these are the things you have to do, you did all of them but one and then you reasoned away the one you didn't do saying, well, actually I kind of did it or maybe the puzzle makers weren't quite good. You know, maybe the instructions weren't quite clear um, and so I've solved it. 
and you just kind of reason it away and you don't even realize you've done that. So so it's interesting. It's I, I like the two words, rational and creativity. So the creativity is, but you have to come up with one solution still. Yes, so, at the so end of the day. So the creativity is there to say, well, it could have been, you all think it's three people because there's three wine glasses, right. but it could have been two people right. and they're fooling with the three. Or this could be a way of spelling the 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 murderer's name or it could have been a way to throw off yep. the, the trail uh so so kind of in each situation and then again this is sort of part exercise part yeah memory of other situations but practicing coming up with as many sol- options for solutions as possible but then you need rational yes. to kind of again whittle down like you can't say well one solution is aliens from space came down and murder <laughs> exactly. people you have to kind of get rid of those, but then even get rid of the ones that are only slightly crazy. You have to be yep. really good at exactly, exactly. And then I guess he uses scientific so, methods. So you to do, have a so you do, but so you do both. But most, you know, so many times we actually don't go through the step of generating the possible solutions because we generate one plausible one and we kind of say, okay, that's good, we're done. Um, but what Holmes is very good at is okay. What are all, what are the possibilities? Let me you know. Let me generate this big list. And obviously, you have to stop generating at some point too. It's not like he sits there for days and days generating different alternatives. There has to be there have to be some sort of criteria in place. But um, you do have to go through that. I mean, so there's there's um, this concept in psychology when you when you're talking about making choices, um, satisficing. Um, and a lot of people will make choices through satisficing. So have you, some people, you know, once something is just, if you're using satisficing, once you find one choice that kind of works, you'll just choose that. Um, whereas other people go through maximizing where they, satisficing is not enough. So they, they'll go through more alternatives and then they'll, they want to maximize. So wait, so, um, so, uh, tell me again, what's the difference between... So satisfying satisfying is basically like, oh, this makes sense. Okay, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm satisfied. That's good. Um, maximizing will go through more, but maximizing can go too far. Like if you just, it can lead to just complete indecision because you just generate alternative after alternative and you never, nothing seems to maximize well enough, right? Right, so, so I, guess, I guess the so challenge is like Watson could do too much satisficing and if there wasn't a time limit on Sherlock solving, he a could case, have theoretically do too much of. He, he could definitely go in the other direction, but he never does. And I think that that's also partly experience. You kind of know um, what what seems right, but it's also he doesn't entertain the aliens from space. Like he has some sort of steps ahead of time where he says, okay, you know, these are, this is the box that we're playing in. These are the puzzle pieces that we have. And I'm not going to suddenly say, okay, um, you know, all of a sudden a ghost came in. Right, because I will realize that that's just a completely irrational thing well, well, that well, we have no proof for. My guess is, and this goes back to his his learning, let's say every case has, every solution to a case has uh, is like a, a list of 10 characteristics. Mm-hmm. So the aliens coming down is so many standard deviations away from the average solution that he right. can kind of eliminate exactly. that. So maybe exactly. he takes all the solutions within one standard deviation. 
That's so, exactly right. That's exactly right. And so I think that the, that that helps you just have. Yes, you want to be creative, but you don't want to go crazy. And by the way, his creator didn't quite follow that because right, obviously Arthur, spiritualism. Yeah, Arthur Conan Doyle went off the deep end. You know, he a lot of people close to him died. Um, he really needed meaning, and he started believing in fairies. Well, I I, I think, and we we've uh, you know. We've explored this a little in terms of conspiracy theories. Yeah. Why do people uh, believe in conspiracy theories? If something traumatic happens to you that causes you to lose faith in some large, let's say, government institution, mm-hmm. you're more likely to basically believe all conspiracies. Absolutely. And, and it's the same thing there. Or he lost people close to him that made him lose, maybe that made him lose faith in, hey, the world's a rational, yeah. calm place. And that broke him down a little bit. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, we need to give him, cut him a little slack when it comes to the spiritualism because you realize what time it was and where we were historically. I mean, William James, you know, one of the greatest minds in psychology was a spiritualist, right? So, well, people now so, are still. So we had, but, but, at, but at that point it was a little bit different because mm-hmm. at that point it was still new and people thought, well, maybe this is going to be a science. So, so we'll cut him a little bit of slack there. We're not going to cut him any slack with the fairies because he believed in this hoax that these two little girls perpetuated that they were communicating with fairies. Um, and that was debunked at the time. Right, but the only reason I cut him slack is just like the conspiracy theory. When you kind of lose faith in something large, and for him it was basically life itself, you're sure. more susceptible. Absolutely. He was more susceptible, but, you know— He wasn't that, applying. That we can't give him the benefit of the doubt of the time. With spiritualism, you can say, okay, like maybe we can give you a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. And by the way, William James never ended up believing in a lot of these— he he just believed that it was a possibility, but he never believed in a lot of the hoaxes, the spiritualist hoaxes that were happening at the time, um, whereas Conan Doyle did. So there is even a, a degree. He was in the spiritualist society, James, and he said, let's remain open-minded. Let's, you know, maybe we'll start learning things. But it's not like he was convinced because we also had Houdini coming up at the same time saying, you know, show me a psychic and I'll uh, and I'll give you a prize and... No one ever claimed that prize. Um, well, so so this is all happening at the same time. So Holmes, Holmes, Conan Doyle should have some of the tools. And I think it's actually very telling that Holmes, his creation is dismissive of all of these things. Well, well, it's interesting because in uh, you point out the quote that Holmes says to Watson, which is that learning never stops. Yes. And so and that includes learning how to be more and more rational yep. about these situations. And I think that's a critical part of his technique too. Absolutely. To never think that you've learned enough that you're done. But, yes. but I want, but that skips one point, which is when you make these, you use your creativity to make these options mm-hmm. and you're rational to start whittling yep. it down. It doesn't seem he whittles it down to one and say, ha ha, that's the answer. There's this middle step where he, 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 he doesn't say this is an answer. He says, this is a hypothesis. Yes. And he, and then he tests out. it. Yep. And then he and then he actually, once he thinks he has a solution, you'll notice that in a lot of his cases, he doesn't offer it right away. Like the case still goes on because he's testing different things. He, he, you know, if you're Watson, if you're Lestrade, if you're Gregson, you might not actually realize what he's testing. You know, why is he doing this? Why is he asking this question? Why is he going to this place? But he already thinks he has the solution, but he doesn't know it's the solution until 
He gathers this additional evidence to kind of test it out, see if it's weak, see if any of the things that would need to be true for the solution to be true are false. Um, he actually goes in every single direction. He, dr- he triangulates. So it's not just, okay, does the evidence I've gathered so far fit? It's also, okay, where are the potential weak points? What things must be true if this is the solution that I haven't even asked about yet? Okay, let me go try to find that. You know, And that's how he's often able to infer missing pieces of information. So a lot of us suffer from something that's known as omission neglect. We neglect the information that's omitted. I will tell you something and you won't even realize that I didn't mention something very important because you'll just focus on what's there and you won't realize what I've left out, what I've omitted. And the most famous example of this in Sherlock Holmes is uh, the case of Silver Blaze, the missing racehorse, where Holmes solves it but hasn't yet told anyone what the solution is because he's also still testing. And um, when the inspector asks him if there's anything that Holmes wishes to point out to him, is there anything to which you wish to draw my attention? Holmes says yes to the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. And the detective says, but the dog did nothing in the nighttime. And Holmes says, well, that's the curious incident. That's kind of the heart of omission neglect because Holmes realizes that the dog didn't bark. Right. So what does that tell us? That tells us something. But he couldn't, but the detective doesn't even notice that because it never happened. But, but it's interesting though. It could be, so so. at some point, so after hypothesis and then final testing and gathering of, yep. of facts or fact, a list of facts that stick in his head, now he makes an actual logical deduction. Yeah. So somewhere either in his creativity or in another case he's seen mm-hmm. or just in life in general, he has a, a a a logical fact. If a dog doesn't bark, then the dog knows the person. Yeah, and so he's able to plug that in. So he's so because he's got a kind of list of axioms of, of first principles, and it might yep. be an enormous list based on studying hundreds yep. of cases and observing hundreds of things. Once he's able, it's not a mission for him. That actually no. is a, an actual fact the that the dog didn't bark because he's got some axiom absolutely but he wouldn't have even known to look there had he not framed it in a certain way right because a lot of the detective might actually have the same axiom theoretically he might know oh yeah dogs don't bark at strangers but he didn't even think to ask the question because he didn't even notice that the dog didn't bark because had the dog barked they would have said oh and the dog barked Right. right, so, so that's what do you a piece think, of evidence. What's the difference between Holmes and the detective? That's there? the creativity. Right. That's actually the taking a step back and generating different solutions and looking at all the different ways the puzzle pieces could fit together and all of the pieces of evidence that would need to be true. So we don't know at what point in his thought process Holmes thought about the fact that the dog didn't bark. Did he first think, oh, maybe it's someone they knew? Okay, what would have happened? Or, or maybe he at first thought, well. The primary suspect is a stranger, but there's a dog there. The dog didn't bark. Huh. Interesting. Maybe that's something that's a red flag. So we don't know which direction he went in, but either way, he had to kind of query that piece of evidence at some point. But he might never have done that had he had a suspect. The suspect's a stranger, but he doesn't even think about the dog um, and everything else fits. Yeah. So, so, and, and, and I'm wondering if for him, it was a mission, even though the person didn't say it, the, the omission itself might have been a very real thing 
or it was a very real thing for him. It is, yeah, and he sees that negative space. So one of the things that he's cultivated in his in himself is the ability to see what's not there, the ability to query the negative, what's not said, what are you not saying? You know, when he talks to people, he says that he he does the exact same thing. What are you telling me about yourself? What aren't you telling me about well, yourself? It, it reminds me of one time we had someone on who was a very, very good at interrogation. Mm-hmm. So, and one of the things he said was, if someone, uh, if you ask someone a question and they seem to answer, but they're not quite answering, right? that's an omission you look for. So yeah. just a, a classic example, maybe maybe I'm, this sheds light on my own insecurity. You ask <laughs> uh, your girlfriend, Hey, where were you last night? And she says, Oh, I was hanging out with my friends. Mm-hmm. She didn't answer the question. <laughs> so there might be something. She didn't say where she was. Sure. So there might be something <laughs> that might be an omission worth exploring in my vast experience of <laughs> these types of questioning. But um Hold on, uh, I should take notes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so so the the one so this was great because I think I have like uh, uh, I mean, in addition to reading your excellent book, by the way, after I read your book, uh, the, the second time, um, I went to see a magic show, uh, that was, uh, very, uh, very much recommended by several friends of mine. And I found myself having a, I don't know why, cause it's not like I've been obsessed with magic shows in the past, but I had a the little, I was practicing this distance uh-huh. approach and it was easier to kind of figure yeah. out what was happening. Well, how different, um, acts were happening if you would, yeah. if you disconnected what was being told from what was what actually yeah. happening in front of you and then have the range of options yeah um i, I can't give an example because i don't want to blow this guy's act but it was just very very interesting that this approach of thinking does work and if you're if you and if you consciously try it and practice it it works better it's very true it does give you this kind of distance that um, we keep using that word, but it's important because it it shows not just physically, but what your mind is doing. Yeah. Because one of the things, this is actually a great example because one of the things that magicians do is they hold your attention and they divert it in a very specific way so that you pay attention to one specific story. And if you actually practice that technique of taking a step back, querying everything, And getting outside of that story, being more kind of objective, getting your emotions out of the equation a little bit, um, you start being able to control your attention rather than have your attention be controlled by the magician, which is what the good magician does. He controls your attention. And and I guess the thing is, he's controlling your attention unless, uh, Mm -hmm. and I just want to make sure I I wrote it down because... um, you know, it's, unless you have skepticism right. on everything that is being said, like if yes. he says, um, you know, hold on a second, I just got to shake my hands because to, to relax. Right. Why is he saying that? Absolutely. Because he's clearly as part of the performance, so something is happening that moment. Right. And, uh, uh, and the something might be a diversion. It might be so that you think the hands are important. Because right. you're like, ooh, I know. And he might be a level beyond that. And actually something completely different is happening. Yeah, like maybe a hand so, under the floor is like <laughs> reaching up and putting exactly. something. Exactly. So so it's actually, it's all about, I think this actually is a really kind of good summary because it's all about reclaiming control over your attention hmm. because there are magicians all around us who are trying to get our attention and divert our attention and direct our attention in specific ways. What Holmes does is he 
takes agency over his attention. And and I think he takes ownership of it. I think for for you, like in your career of all the things that you've explored, you've been obsessed with this, like you know about controlling your attention, yes. being curious. Uh, and then and there's two things really. There's one is like you said, re- reclaiming your attention, and the other thing is. I think learning and skill acquisition. Yeah. So, so if you look at con men, they're all about diverting your attention. Yes. Sherlock Holmes is all about looking for instances where someone's trying to divert his attention. Poker, it's all about Absolutely. diverting attention. But all of these things also fall under that category of, you know, we've even talked about this on other podcasts, the, the so-called ten thousand hour rule of of skill acquisition. Like Sherlock Holmes also had to study thousands of cases. You've had to study thousands of poker hands. Con men probably have been through hundreds or thousands of instances of conning. Mm-hmm. And so they get really good at it and they put in the 10,000 hours. I've actually changed my opinion good, a little on that. Because you remember we argued about this. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> I was really trying to figure out my own views on it. And the last time we spoke about it, I asked you, my, my, my working theory then was, is that you can borrow hours from other domains. So you had this domain of expertise, for instance, of studying Sherlock Holmes and con men and neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And I asked you, how do you apply that towards poker? Like, I was curious if you could, instead of having 10,000 hours of poker playing, could you borrow 4,000 hours Mm -hmm. from your other stuff? And you agreed, I think correctly, yes, that studying observation, studying distance, studying a kind of mindfulness in Mm -hmm. in the situation, studying your, uh, having a meta awareness of your own faults is important. But, but I think I still believe in that borrowing, but now I'm going to add to it a little, which is I I really believe in um, what I'll call a a 10,000 experiment rule so that you learn the most when you decide to not only study the past, but while you're doing something, you experiment just a little bit. Because when you're experimenting, you're specifically doing something you don't know. You're doing and, something different. Right. The As opposed to repetition. Pre- reward prediction error. Yeah. The, the reality is a mismatch between what you were expecting. So you're actually, through experimenting, you're cultivating that, that reward prediction error. And so, so in some domains, like let's say violin, uh, it might not be as easy to find a new situation to experiment with. But with... Uh, poker, for instance, you might experiment with, well, you know, I've never bet in this situation when yeah. when the guy behind me is raising yeah. all the time. I'm going to experiment with this. I'll do it a couple of times. I have a hypothesis that I'm going to win more. Oh, I didn't. The experiment didn't work. Why didn't it work? Now it gives you this whole domain. To, yep. t- I, think, I think doing that skips hours, particularly if in domains, which are most domains that don't require just repetition. Absolutely. Absolutely. So like piano is mostly repetition, let's sure. say for the first 9,000 hours. But, uh, and then there's like your own unique voice to it. But some domains like that where there's a in, there's not perfect information and not repetition, like in poker, mm-hmm. I feel like you have to experiment more and you get, and then you get, it gives you a chance to skip those hours. Absolutely. And even with something like, um, like piano, um, you'd be surprised. Yeah, you do need to get the technique, but I think you'd be surprised at how much experimenting can help. Like maybe you approach the keys a little differently. Mm. Maybe you sit differently. Maybe you think of, you know, a different way to do something and all of a sudden your technique improves because, oh, wow, no one told you, but for you personally, that helped tremendously. And all of a sudden, because I actually, so um, I know one of my friends who 
is now a writer, used to be a professional ballet dancer. And she has this very fascinating experience of how there was a moment where she decided she was in ballet class. This was before she was spotted as being an exceptional dancer. And she said, you know what? Like everything this teacher is telling me, I'm going to pretend to be a robot and I'm going to do everything like as if I'm a robot. And all of a sudden there was just this change to her bearing and to how she was doing everything. And her teacher said, hey, everyone look at Sophie. Right. Well, well, that's fascinating because I think you're right. So, so even with piano, imagine if here's an experiment before you sit down to play the piano, listen to five straight hours of Glenn Gould playing the piano. Yes. And or as opposed to the next time, don't listen to anybody and just sit down and play. Is your, and then listen to both. Is the piano, where, where is the piano playing better? Or have a teacher listen yes. to both. So, so coming up with experiments. And again, if all you do is, is like, because you've just kind of outlined why piano might not be pure repetition. If all you do is repeat, you'll get better. But if you don't do that experiment, you will, you'll never know if you could have skipped a few hours. And you'll never know whether you actually have a different voice. You'll never know whether you actually would love this if you approached it differently. So I think that there's a blindness that comes from, from just thoughtless repetition. And what you're, I think what you're experimenting is getting at is the necessity, if you're going to get good at anything, to do it actively and to query it and to think, okay, why am I doing it this way? Let me, let me try, you know, let me be actively engaged with it. Um, and let me be creative about it. And also, I guess when the nature of experiments is most of the time, you're going to fail. And as we outlined earlier, failure gives you more opportunities yeah. to learn. And that's okay. Failing is okay. And I think one of the things that we teach kids, unfortunately, is that failing is not okay. You know, show your work, but do it the way that I do it on the board. Um, and, or I guess that dates me, not bored, but, but however it is that teachers these days explain what they're doing on, on the screen. Um, but I think that, and, you know, then the kids learn that, oh, being wrong is actually not good and doing it in a different way is not good and maybe I should just learn the specific way to do it um, that I'm supposed to. And then they graduate and then they go to work and it's not like their boss says, oh, it's okay if you fail. No. I mean, people say, yes, we value creativity, we value all of these different things, but no one actually wants to put their money there for the most part. There are some companies that do. But for the most part, like... They're not okay if you take a huge risk and you fail. You're going to get fired. Yeah, or <laughs> crash the plane. Exactly. Exactly. So, so it's one of these things where experimenting is really important, but we're not necessarily rewarded for it. In or, or it's a skill in experiment design to figure out how to safely experiment in different environments. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So that becomes a skill in and itself. Yep. Yep. So this is so my my next book I think is revolving around this idea of experimentation to skip the ten thousand hours. That sounds very so, interesting. I will read that book. Well, as I've read all of yours, and I can't. <laughs> when's your next book coming out? Um, um, the biggest bluff. It's going to be twenty twenty. We are. It's going to be somewhere between the summer and the early fall of twenty twenty. But we don't have the exact date yet. Are, are we'll, you worried, we'll know it soon. Are you worried you're going to be competing with? There's going to be. 
15 books a week about Trump coming out in the election? Yes, absolutely. So it's actually um, a fine dance of release timing to try to figure out when in 2020 will people have brain power for something that is not Trump. Probably, you know what, probably like <laughs> right between primaries and convention maybe. So that's what, between summer and uh, between the spring and summer or, yeah. or summer and fall, I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, I am so excited for this book. You're obviously going to come back on for the oh, book, thank right? thank you. Yes, so absolutely. I'm incredibly I, I'm excited for it. I'm happy to come it. on anytime. It's the book of the year in 2020 for me to read. <laughs> I'm so excited. Could we play a couple of hands before, yes. before, before then? Absolutely. So that would be good too. It. And uh, thanks so much. Once again, Maria Konnikova, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, also The Confidence Game, uh, another New York Times bestseller, and then the upcoming The Biggest Bluff. Any, anything else you want to... You, you did the podcast, The Grift. What I Anything did. you're doing right um, now? No, right now I am finishing up edits for The Biggest Bluff. So that's occupying all my time because I want to make it as good as it possibly can be. That's great. I, I can't wait. And I've learned a lot in this in this podcast. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, James. It's always such a pleasure. Thanks. 